Good morning. Somebody left me water since I had a little trouble last week. So, so whoever that whoever that was, thank you. It should have like Kool Aid sprinkled in it, but. We spent um, a number of weeks in John chapter 3, I mean John chapter 6, and um, I was thinking as we were just singing, you're worthy of it all, what? You know, the <clears throat> what I think about when we sing things like that, is how worthy he is. Revelation 4 and 5, when the question was asked, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls? John said he saw one. He was a lamb. And he bore in himself the marks of death. But he was really a lion. You know, John chapter 6 was a chapter where Jesus, in a sense, forfeited the crowds because he told them the truth instead of what they wanted to hear. Well, that continues in John chapter 7. Only it, it breaks my heart even more because in John chapter 7, Jesus is first of all rejected by his own family. We're going to find his brothers giving him advice. And it's heartbreaking the way that it unfolds. John is pretty good in his gospel. You know, he's already told, he's told he will tell us at the end that it was impossible to record everything that Jesus said or everything that he did to record all of his miracles. John is going to admit that, that it would take all the books in the world to, to record all of those things. And so, so we know that he's cherry picking out of all of the things that happened because he's trying to unfold a narrative, a, display a drama. He uses a phrase several times in his book, We've seen it before. He starts a chapter with the words, after these things. Now, after these things is, is John's way of not just saying, this is what came next. It's his way of jumping forward in time. If you ever watch football games and, and when they're rebroadcast, it'll say, uh, due to limitations of time, this, this game has now been you know, advanced or whatever. Well, that's what John does in his gospel. Uh, in John chapter 6, I mentioned that the cross was now about a year away. Well, in John chapter 7, he starts by saying, after these things. Well, when you, when you put the gospel of John next to the synoptic gospels, side by side in a harmony, and you see what's happening, what you realize is that another six months passes between the end of John chapter 6 and the start of John chapter 7. John has just bolted forward, and he says, after these things. Well, what we know from the other Gospels is that in the six months that John is now going to skip over, 
Jesus has been continuing in the area of Galilee and, and what we today call Syrophoenicia, which was like the Caesarea Philippi area. He was, he was continuing to teach and do miracles and announce the kingdom. But in that part of, 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 the ancient, of ancient Israel, um, that would have been what we, what we see as the rural areas. You might call it the boonies. It's time for the next festival. The Festival of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles, was probably the favorite festival in, in, in Judaism uh, 2,000 years ago. It's sort of like, it's sort of akin to the American Thanksgiving. The Feast of Tabernacles was designed for several things. It was, uh, it was called that because they would live, they would construct temporary dwellings, and basically families would, in effect, camp out together for a week because it was the particular festival that was given to remind Israel of the days between leaving Egypt and settling in the Promised Land when Israel was nomadic, when they lived in temporary dwellings. But it was a big, uh, it was a big celebration. Uh, for example, people in Jerusalem, either if they had space in front of their house or behind their house, a front yard or a backyard, they would, they would leave their house and they would basically set up tents or they would build a little temporary structure and the whole family would camp out for a week. For the rest of the nation, they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this particular festival, and all around the outsides of the city wall of Jerusalem, a tent city would pop up, and, and people would build these temporary uh, arbors or, or, or structures, and the family, it was, it was, it was kind of like a massive tailgate party. Families would be there, and they would camp out for a week, and they would, they would go into the city and, and go to the temple for the, the ceremonies and the celebrations, and, and it was a, a hugely popular uh, festival. It was not only to remind them of that nomadic period in their history, but it was also, like I say, kind of a Thanksgiving. It was to celebrate the harvest in the fall. The, the Festival of Booths was midway between Passovers. Okay, so that's why we know it's about six months because uh, the Passover, where we were in John chapter 6, now we're at the Festival of Booths. That's about six months that we've jumped over. So now this, this final stretch to the cross is underway because we're just in John chapter 7, but the rest of John are these final weeks that lead to the cross. Uh, that's where the, the major emphasis of, of this gospel is going to be. Really, by the time we get to chapter 9, we're sort of, we're sort of there. And, and the events of those last days will unfold in the rest of this gospel. Now, the reason I'm telling you all of this is because this was a natural time for people to, to go to this festival. It was an eight-day festival, and they had certain rituals that they would practice. And I'll tell you about those in a little bit, but, um, but it was a big deal. Jesus is in Galilee, and his brothers come to him, his half-brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph. They grew up with Jesus as an older brother. And yet we find in this chapter that they not only don't believe in him as the Messiah, but they speak to him in kind of a, a, a disdainful way. 
And so I want to I want to go to, to John chapter seven, and I want to start with with that family encounter. I've called it mistaken advice. His brothers have kind of an earth-based philosophy of publicity, and they're going to give Jesus some bad advice, and he's going to give them an answer that is stunningly funny, I think, once you understand what he says. Um, But here's the question as I read these verses, how could they not believe? I mean, we've just sang, you're worthy of it all. And I'm distressed at how our generation can't find the truth that's in Jesus. And yet, the Bible tells me that even his own half-brothers couldn't find it. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not afraid. It's a matter of timing. We're going to see that in just a minute, and I'll explain it to you. (coughs) Verse 2. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. So his brother said to him, Move on from here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself is striving to be known publicly. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Here's their bad advice. They say, listen, instead of being here on the backside of nowhere, why don't you go to Jerusalem? That's where things happen. You could do something there, do some miracles in Jerusalem, get some publicity, stir up the crowds. That's what you'd need to do. It's not a sincere offer of advice. It's kind of a contemptuous mocking. I mean, he's the older brother, but, but they're all coming at him like, you know, if you're such a big deal, what are you doing here in Galilee? You should be in the big time. Go to Jerusalem. Make yourself known. They're laughing at him, not with him. They consider him to be wasting time. They don't believe that he's the Messiah. But if he is the Messiah, then get on to Jerusalem and make a big show of it. Listen, folks. This is the same temptation that Jesus has already dealt with in Matthew chapter 4 when he goes into the wilderness and the devil comes to him and says, Hey, listen, you know, if you'd go to Jerusalem and you'd go up on the temple and you'd jump off and God would send an angel to swoop you up and settle you to the ground safely, they'd be talking about you. You could get a crowd. You'd stir up some publicity. That's the same temptation. They're saying, why don't you do something where it matters? You're hidden here in the backside of nowhere. Go to Jerusalem. Make a splash. <laughs> and then Jesus says this. Oh, my stars. I, I, I got I to explain this to you in a way that you get it. Because he goes, verse 6. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here. But your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I'm not going up to this feast because my time has not yet fully arrived. Now, having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Here's the verse. My time is not yet here, but your time is always ready. Okay. You've got to understand this because here's what Jesus is saying. He's using two different Greek words. 
and these words have significance. One Greek word is the word chronos. That's where we get our word chronology. Chronology or chronos, that's just the normal flow of time. One second follows another second, one minute follows another minute, one hour follows another hour. It's just the, the natural flow of time. That's chronos. There's a second Greek word for time. It's the word kairos. Kairos is, means, we, and we use the word time this way too. If I say what time is it, I'm asking you chronos. What's the time on, on your watch? But if I look at you and you're about to do something, you're about to go on stage, you're about to do something significant, you're about to do something you've prepared your whole life to do, and I say this to you, I say, this is your time. I'm using the meaning of kairos. This is your moment that is pregnant with significance. What Jesus says here is, my kairos is not here yet. My significant moment is not yet. But your chronos is always ready. What he's saying in a not too subtle way is, I'm following God's timetable, and it's not time for me to do this yet because he hasn't willed it, but you're doing whatever the heck you want to do. And God has no say in the way you keep your schedule, so you can go anytime. It's a powerful rebuttal. He's saying, my life matters. Your life could matter, but right now it doesn't really, because you're just living it minute by minute with whatever comes along. You're stuck in chronos time when God really wants to give you kairos time well it says that he told them he's not going and then he goes did Jesus make a mistake did he tell a story no let me explain the words what it should be translated is um, he stayed in Galilee for now verse 9 now verse 10 here's his heavenly presentation all right he's operating on Kairos time verse 10 it says, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as though in secret. What would have happened is families would have traveled together. It would have been a big caravan. Everybody was going to Jerusalem. It would have been a party atmosphere. You all traveled together. You camped at night on your way there. Um, there was singing. There was cookouts. I mean, it was, a, it was a big deal. The brothers go with the family and, and probably other families on their way. Jesus waits and goes by himself. Verse 11, so the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was a great deal of talk about him in secret among the crowds. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's misleading the people. However, no one was speaking openly about him for fear of the Jews. Now that's interesting. It's been 18 months since Jesus has been in Jerusalem. But you remember what happened the last time he was there? He went to the pool of Bethsaida and he found a man that had been sick for 38 years and he healed him. But he did it on the Sabbath. Woo! Started a stir. 18 months later, Jesus hadn't been back, but he's still the talk of the town. That miracle is still hanging in the air. And because it's another festival, everybody arrives wondering if Jesus is going to show up. Are we going to have another incident? Are we going to have another episode? 
Where is he? Some were saying, I, I can't wait because, because I think this is a good guy. And others were saying, no, 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 he's, he, he's a false teacher. But here's the, the, the verse that's interesting. They're arguing back and forth. <coughs> but it says in verse 13, however, no one was speaking openly about him for the fear of the Jews. Everybody was talking about him, but everybody did it in whispered tones because the people in charge were not happy about this whole Jesus thing. And you, you didn't want to be caught talking about him. Verse 14, but when it was now the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple area and began to teach. We're halfway through the week and Jesus makes his appearance. He goes to the temple and he begins to teach. Now what's fascinating about that is that Jesus, every time he teaches in the, in the, in the New Testament, uh, the people are always amazed. Now you may think to yourself, why, was, why were they so amazed? I mean, was Jesus just that engaging a speaker? Well, the answer is yes, but let me tell you why. In a traditional rabbinical model, a rabbi was a teacher. The, t- the traditional way that rabbis taught in ancient Israel was that they uh, memorized the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They memorized those first five books of, uh, of the Old Testament, and then they memorized reams, volumes of commentaries written by scholars that had gone before them about the first five books of the Bible. So when a teacher stood up, he would say, let's open the scroll and we're going to read today from, say, uh, the farewell address of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And he would read the Hebrew text of the passage, much like a pastor will do at the start of a sermon. And then they would proceed to rotely quote the experts. Rabbi so-and-so said this about this passage. Rabbi so-and-so said this about that passage. Rabbi so-and-so said this about that passage. And that was the lesson. I mean, it was just me showing you that I know all the stuff and you sitting there going, how many more experts is he going to go through? Because we got to get out of here. That was the way of teaching in, in the ancient world. Jesus would open the scroll and he would read the text, and then guess what? He explained it. He talked about it. He didn't quote other authorities. He didn't, he didn't highlight what had been said before him by this rabbi or that rabbi. He was, Jesus was so saturated with the Word of God that when he spoke about it, it came alive. It wasn't a dry, dusty presentation of of old dead people who'd left commentaries behind. This was Jesus talking to them about the Word of God, you know, like he knew God. And when Jesus taught, it drew a crowd because they were captivated by it. They'd all been taught their whole lives. They'd They'd all been to synagogue. They'd set through those lessons of one intellect uh, quoting other intellects while the regular people sit there going, how much longer is this going to be? And then Jesus comes along and he tells stories and he weaves parables so they understand and he makes the point and, and, and he teaches in a way that is engaging. And when they find out that Jesus is teaching somewhere, man, they're going to show up. Why? Because he's the only preacher in their generation that took the word of God and made it come alive. Almost like, you know, 
He wrote it. Well, you can imagine why the other rabbis didn't like him around. Well, here's what's going on. The middle of this chapter, we're not going to cover too much. I just want to read it and let it speak for itself. But I've called this mistaken assessments. <clears throat> there are three categories of people. Jerusalem visitors. Those are people that are in Jerusalem for the, for the, uh, for the celebration. They don't live in Jerusalem. They've, they've come from somewhere else. Then Jerusalem residents, people who live there. They're up to date on all of the, the plots again, about Jesus that are, that are swirling. And then the authorities, those are the elites who are going to join this conversation. Let me just read this middle section because I believe the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. So I, I want to let it speak for itself. But I'm not going to do a lot of, uh, of explanation here because it's, it's really pretty straightforward. First of all, you have the visitors to Jerusalem. Verse 15. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, not having been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I am speaking from myself. The one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there's no unrighteousness in him. In other words, Jesus is simply saying, You'll know that my, my teaching is from God or not, depending on the results of it. I mean, we live in a generation where people have swallowed the teaching of Darwin, the teachings of Nietzsche, the teachings of Karl Marx, and even the teachings of Muhammad. In a pretty controversial statement, which it shouldn't be, I would say, did the teachings of any of those men make the world a better place? Absolutely not. But what about the teachings of Jesus? Well, we're told, and do not believe this lie, we're told that Christianity is the source of oppression in the world today. Let me explain something to you. If Christianity hadn't come into the world 2,000 years ago through Jesus Christ, we would be extinct as a species today. Well, that's a little... A little over the top, isn't it, Pastor? No, it's absolutely not. Because one thing, if you go back and study the Roman Empire and the empires that preceded them, what you, would, what you will discover is that the, the disregard for human life was breathtaking. The way that, that cruelty reigned in, in, in normal society, the way life was cheapened, it just didn't matter Really, without the leaven of Christianity in Western civilization, uh, we would have killed ourselves off way before we got through the Dark Ages. When people say, well, and, and I love this because they always, this is their all, all, always their challenge. Uh, I say, well, why, why do you think Christianity is, is such an impressive force? Well, what about the Crusades? Well, if you have to go back a thousand years to find something to complain about, we're in pretty good shape. <laughs> but let's talk about the Crusades. Were there some outrageous, wrong things that happened in the Crusades? Yes, absolutely there was, and I won't deny that. But let me tell you about the Crusades. Do you know what started the Crusades? Muslim invasions in the East, they were executing Christians and burning church buildings and Christian nations in the West raised armies to go protect the Christians in the East who were being persecuted. 
you know, sort of like everybody that wants us to charge into Ukraine to help today. And yet, helping Ukraine today is a noble thing, but the Crusades has been given this bad rap. Fact of the matter was, uh, while there were some bad things that happened in the Crusades, like there are bad things that happen in every war, the motive of the Crusades was not all that out of bounds. But what about these people that swallowed the teaching of Jesus? Well, if we didn't have Christianity for the last 2,000 years, we wouldn't have hospitals or orphanages. We wouldn't have a great deal of science, which is so worshiped today. We wouldn't have any benevolence organizations. We wouldn't have any concern whatsoever with children. You see, this oppressive force called Christianity, they were the ones rescuing children in Rome that had been abandoned by their families. These were the ones staying behind in pandemics, ministering to the sick and the dying, while everybody else was racing into lockdown to hide themselves from the disease. Nothing has changed. The fact of the matter is, you can tell the results of a man by his teachings and, the, and what plays out in the lives of the people who follow those teachings. Western civilization would not exist apart from Christianity. Well, here we go. In verse 19, did Moses not give you the law? This is Jesus talking. And yet none of you carries out the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Now, remember, these are the non-Jewish residents. These are the outsiders. What they're basically saying, this comment, you have a demon, they're basically saying, you're paranoid. I mean, nobody's trying to kill you because they don't know what's going on. Now, when we move to the Jerusalem residents, they're aware of what's happening. So they say, nobody's trying to kill you. And Jesus has said, you know, you love the law. You, you, you play with it like it's a complex game of legalism where you figure out what you can do and what you can't do and what's legal and what's not legal. The fact of the matter is none of you are follow, following the law anyway. Verse 22, he says, for this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And even on a Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on a Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry at me because I made an entire man well on a Sabbath? Remember, he healed 18 months before he healed a man on the Sabbath, and they pitched a fit. He's like, you know, the law allows you to circumcise a, a, a child if, if that circumcision on the eighth day happens to fall on a Sabbath, if that's a... a an exception that's allowed for circumcision, how is me healing an entire body not fall under that same exception? Well, do not judge by the outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, here's where the Jerusalem residents jump in. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this man not the one whom they are seeking to kill? See, they knew there was a plot going on. And yet, look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, let me tell you about that. There was, not biblical, but in the traditions that had emerged in Judaism, they had two ideas which in their mind proved that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. The first idea was they had convinced themselves that, um, that when the Messiah came, Nobody would know where he came from. 
his background would be shrouded in mystery. The second thing that they had been taught by tradition was that when the Messiah comes, even the Messiah himself won't know he's the Messiah until Elijah shows up and anoints him as the chosen one. Well, they looked at Jesus and said, okay, first of all, we know where he's from. We know his mama, we know his daddy, we know all of his brothers and and sisters, uh, you know, so so he can't possibly be the Messiah because we know where he comes from. Well, that's not a biblical rule. That's a made-up rule, but they were living by it. But the second thing was, here's Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm here. I'm the one that God sent. And they're saying, well, but see, the real Messiah is not going to know that about himself. Again, not a biblical rule, a made-up rule. But they were convinced by their made-up rules that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because he wasn't qualified by what they were expecting. Verse 28, then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me, and you know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I do know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, and yet no one laid a hand on him, because his hour, his kairos, had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, will he not perform uh, he will not perform more signs than those with this man does, will he? Now, this is where the, the, uh, the, the elite jump in. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I'm going to be with you, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He does not intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? What's interesting about this is Jesus says, I'm only going to be here a little bit longer. He knows we're now within six months of the cross. Jesus understands the timetable here. I'm just going to be here a little bit longer, but then I'm going to go somewhere that you can't find me. And you can't follow me there. Well, they're... Their intellectual feet are so stuck in the mud of earth that they can't imagine that he's talking about going up. They think he's talking about going away. And so they say, well, what's he talking about? Is he going to leave this country and go live out there among the Gentiles? I mean, what a horrifying thought. No Jew ever wanted to be caught in a situation where you had to live in Gentile land. But that's all they could think of. The only place he's going to go that we're not going to want to follow is if he goes and lives among the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They have no idea he's talking about what we call his ascension, the day when he will go back to the Father who sent him to the earth. Okay, now, here's where we get to his his announcement, and this is, is really important for you to hear, but let me give you some background. This festival of booze, I told you about living in the temporary housing and, and the, the, the Thanksgiving atmosphere, the families together, eating out, cooking out, you know, camping out. It's kind of a deal. But when they would go into the city, there was a, there was a, a ritual every day at the temple that was a part of this festival. There was a golden pitcher that each day they would take to the pool of Siloam and they would reach down and they would fill it with water. And then in a processional, they would march back to the altar in the temple and they would pour that water out 
with the, with the choir, the temple choir, singing from Isaiah chapter 12, verses that talk about um, uh, pouring out the waters of salvation that God has given us. They would pour out that water over the temple, and they would do it for seven days. Now, it was a reminder of two things. The pouring out of that water was a reminder of that nomadic period between Egypt and the Promised Land, when God provided water for Israel in the desert. So the pouring out of that water was a reminder of the physical water that God gave them when they were nomads in the desert. The pouring out of the water was also a promise of a day coming that the prophets had all spoken about when God, like water, would pour out his spirit on his people. Let me just give you some verses that you can look up when, when, you, uh, when you have time. <coughs> These are all verses <coughs> related to the, that idea of God pouring out his spirit like water. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Isaiah 55, 1. Isaiah 58, 11. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. Joel chapter 3, verse 18. Zechariah 13, 1. And Zechariah 14.8. Now that took me about 10 seconds to find. Because there are so many references to this idea, this imagery of God pouring out his spirit like he pours out water. Well, so they're remembering the physical water in the desert. But they're also remembering the promise of God pouring out his spirit. Well, that's seven days. On the eighth day of the festival of booze, they take the golden pitcher but this time they bypass the pool of Siloam and they go to the temple and there at the altar, they go through the motion of pouring out the water, only there's no water in the pitcher this time. And that is the symbol that the prophecies of God's spirit poured out in his people have not yet come. Okay, now I've set the stage for one of the best timing moments in a sermon in all of human history okay it's the eighth day of the festival and they're going through this ritual and they're about to pour out nothing from an empty golden pitcher a symbol of the spirit coming from God to his people that hasn't yet been fulfilled Verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Remember, it's, it's at this very moment. Picture nothing, empty. Not yet, someday. Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. In John chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. If you'll eat me, if you'll consume me, if you'll saturate your system with me, I will give you life. Now in John chapter 7, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm living water. If you'll, if you'll drink me, fountains of living water will spring up. You will hydrate every molecule of your soul and body with life if you take me in. At the moment that they looked at an empty pitcher and said, someday, someday, 
Someday, God is going to give us his, his spirit. He's promised to us. Jesus stands up at just that moment and says, drink from me. I am the fulfillment of that empty pitcher. God here is announcing that his spirit is on its way. Now, John's going to clarify. He wants to make sure that we don't miss the point. He says here, but this he said in reference to the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, John says Jesus is inviting them to himself because those who come to him just about seven months down the road are going to find themselves at a different festival called Pentecost. And the Spirit of God is going to fulfill every Old Testament promise and pour out Himself on God's people. They will never be the same. The world will never be the same. Some of the people, therefore, after they heard these words were saying, this truly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Man, people heard Jesus and they believed Him. But others were saying, surely the Christ is not coming from Galilee, is he? Has the scripture not said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Yeah, the scriptures did say that. But see, they didn't have all the information about Jesus to know that he was a descendant of David and he did come from Bethlehem. So a dissension occurred in the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers, this is the temple police force that had been sent by the Pharisees and the temple leaders to go arrest Jesus. They come back empty-handed in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken in this way. They sent the police to go arrest Jesus, and they got so caught up in what Jesus was saying, they came back empty-handed and said, yeah, well, this guy's the real deal. You might want to rethink this whole arrest business. The Pharisees then replied to them, you have been led astray too, have you? Not one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Listen, there's a kind of perverse contempt here. These religious elites despise the regular uneducated people as stupid and cursed. They believed that they were the only guardians of correct theology and truth. They despised even the temple police that worked for them. Years ago, years ago, years ago, when I was a very young pastor, I was in a circle of conversation. Actually, that's not true. I was listening to a circle of conversation of, of some older guys. I really didn't have the stature at that point to you know, jump into the conversation. But I remember hearing one of them complaining about his church members with the same kind of contempt that I see in these verses. Basically, you know, they're all biblically illiterate. Nobody knows the Bible in my church. They, 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 they don't have any grasp of theology. I mean, it's just like leading a bunch of idiots. I was a young pastor. I was pretty new to the, to the work. But it made a real impression on me because I walked away that day 
thinking I was probably being too idealistic as a young guy, but now as an old guy, I look back and I still feel the exact same way. If you're a shepherd and you don't like the sheep, maybe you need to stop being a shepherd. Because the sheep certainly don't need a shepherd that, that has disdain and contempt for them. You know, if the crowds didn't know the Word of God, whose fault is that but the one who's supposed to be teaching the Word of God? If the crowds don't understand theology, whose fault is that except the one that's responsible to be instructing in theology? If they didn't know how to pursue a righteous lifestyle, whose fault is that except the ones who are supposed to be explaining righteousness? And here they are literally spitting out their contempt for the people that they see as just um, stupid and cursed. And then one guy shows up, verse 50, Nicodemus. Now we remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3, but John wants to make sure that we remember. So in parentheses he says, the one who came to him before being one of them. In other words, he's a Pharisee, but this is the same guy that came to visit Jesus by night. This is the man that Jesus told this verse to, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son only begotten son so that whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life most famous verse in the bible was delivered to this nicodemus here he steps up maybe tentatively we don't know yet where he is in his spiritual pilgrimage but he steps up and he says this our law does not judge the person unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing does it Nicodemus steps into this conversation of people frothing at the mouth because they hate Jesus so much. And he says, you know, you haven't even followed due process. You haven't even given him a hearing. I wonder if Nicodemus is thinking, man, if you would just sit down with this guy, Jesus, like I did, if you'll just listen to him talk, you'll never be the same. Instead, they just said, you're not from Galilee as well, are you? In other words, you're not also one of those idiots. Examine the scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, that's interesting because the fact of the matter is they rejected his advice. They slapped him down figuratively and said, go to scripture. You're supposed to be so smart about the Bible. There's no prophet that's come from Galilee. Well, actually, Elijah Elijah came from a place called Gilead, which is smack dab in the middle of Galilee. In fact, there's another prophet who wrote a little book. His name is Jonah. Jonah came from Gath-Hafer, which was literally up the road from Nazareth. But here's the thing. When you have a rebellious heart, you're never bothered by the facts. But that little equation that I just gave you there can be reversed. We live in a whole generation that basically says facts don't matter. So I just said, when you have a rebellious heart, you're not bothered by facts. You can flip that on its head and say, in a generation that's not bothered by facts, you probably know you're, you're dealing with people who have rebellious hearts toward God. Well, I wish this story had a better ending. I wish Jesus had gone to the temple and announced the living water. I wish people had flocked to him. I wish Israel had repented. I wish there had been revival and spiritual awakening break out. 
That's not what happened. Look at the last verse, verse 53. And everyone went home. Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is in the temple, the Son of God, the bread of life, the water of life. His family was there. How could they not believe him? And everybody finished with the celebration of the festival and they packed up their temporary houses, they put away their tents, and they just went home. Jesus didn't have a home to go to. He went to the Mount of Olives, which was one of the places he regularly went to just talk to the Father about what comes next. Fortunately, when it comes to Jesus' stories, a chapter might end and it might seem to have a particularly unsatisfying finish. But the thing you got to remember about Jesus is the story ain't over till it's over. So we're going to put we're going to press pause right here. Everybody's gone home without Jesus. Jesus goes off to wait for the next kairos, the next moment of significance in this race toward the cross. And we're going to come back in a week and we're going to pick up this story. As sad as this break is, and we're going to see Jesus do a miracle greater than the feeding of the 5,000. A miracle called grace. Read ahead and be ready. As we go out, may we be a people who by taking in the bread of life and consuming the water of life, may we be saturated with the Word of God.